This is Jeremiah Jetty, and welcome to Barbarians at the Gate, coming to you from high above Dongcheng District in Beijing. With me, as always, is my co-host, David Moser. David, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, but I'm getting a little bit uh, bored here staying in Beijing. I haven't been able to travel. I haven't been uh, in the U.S. in about two years. I haven't seen my wife and daughter for a year and a half. And uh, for avid fans of the podcast, if we have any, they remember we recorded a podcast about the problems of travel during chi- in China during the COVID-19 era. And it seems from my standpoint that we're still mired in that era. I haven't gone anywhere in two years. You know, it's interesting. I, I have done a little bit of traveling over the last couple of years. And if, uh, if my experience on trains and airports is any indication, I'm not the only one. Right now, we see the tourism industry. It's, it's slowly coming back in the rest of the world. But in China, it's been kind of going on ever since, you know, middle of 2020. Uh, last year, which is uh, 2021, there were over 3.43 billion domestic trips in China. That was a 19% increase over 2020. And the the China Tourism Academy expects that to continue in 2022, COVID and Omicron willing, estimating that the domestic tourism will be about 70% of pre-pandemic levels uh, by the end of this year. And so, you know, it is kind of been fascinating to watch the Chinese travel industry come back so robustly. But of course, that's been a trend that's been going on for the better part of a decade or more. And I think one of the things that when we read about the, the China travel boom of the last decade, at least for me, I, I read about, I, I think about all the new infrastructure, all the new publications. You know, wow, China is traveling more than ever. Chinese people are going overseas. People are rediscovering their own country. And then, boom, I read this book uh, by our guest today, Professor Moya Jun. The book is Touring China, A History of Travel Culture, 1912 to 1949. And once again, what I think is this new phenomenon turns out to have important precedents going back to the Republican era when urbanites took to the took to the railways to discover their own country. Professor Moya, thank you for joining us today from Boston. Thank you. Thank you for having me. David and I love this book, and I, I thought it was really fascinating to see how many things that a lot of people feel are kind of new phenomenon in 21st century China have important parallels going back a century or more. And I think just to kind of jump into it, one of the things that you write, uh, your, uh, one of the arguments that you make is that in tourism, in travel culture, people in China in the Republican era, people living in urban spaces in Republican China, they found through travel a shared expression of their national space. And I, I really love that line. I love that phrase. What do you mean by a shared expression of their national space? Uh, that's the central kind of argument of the book. One thing I do want to say is, you know, as you said, you discovered that this kind of a robust travel culture and tourism is not new from my book. I think historians of imperial China also tend to say China have a long history of travel, which I agree. Scholars of Ming Dynasty also, you know, kind of pinpoint, for example, tourism to Taishan or other kind of more famous kind of pilgrim, uh, pilgrimage sites as, you know, early prototype of tourism. What I'm arguing in my book is really say tourism, you know, those kind of prototype tourism is very kind of seasonal and very localized. But if you look at 20th century, you with the introduction of um, steam-powered transportation, industrialized uh, transportation, trains, steamship, uh, and later on will be uh, motorways and, you know, cars. All these, tr- you know, kind of fundamentally changed how people travel. People travel faster, cover longer distances within shorter time. 
and also kind of the price also came down and you know make it and on you know kind of parallel to that you have this industrial lifestyle being established by that i also means you know you change your weekly rhythm right the week is in- introduced and you have weekend and how you know and also social organization also change schools modern schools established workplaces changed this kind of um, uh, kind of this kind of uh, organizations for kind of common interests starting to emerge in the urban centers big cities so all these fundamental funnel into this set up the stage for modern tourists and modern tourism to emerge and develop in China. So that's the story I want to tell in my book for the first half of the 20th century. And this kind of, I'm tracking how this modern tourism network emerging from coastal big cities like Shanghai, also kind of in the Tianjin, Beijing area, and also in the south in Guangzhou and Hong Kong region. And it kind of extended throughout the two, three decades I'm tracking and also sometimes will shrink and you know, kind of shut down, for example, wartime. So that development gives people a sense how huge China is and also how you, know, how you make sense of it. I'm not trying to say that all the urbanites go all the way, like very far, but the possibility of saying one day in the 30s when Longhai Railway extended to Xi'an, someone in Shanghai or someone in Beijing would be, you know, it would, it would be thinkable to say, I want to go visit Xi'an, which a place probably uh, for urbanites in coastal regions would not uh, have the opportunity to do, say, 1880s or 1890s. So, so that's the story I want to tell. With the expansion of tourism network, it really uh, have a way for the self-crafting of the China's national space to propagate among the urbanites. One of the protagonists of the book that you introduced early on is this this guy, uh, Chen Guangfu, who was a banker and really is responsible for the modern uh, travel agency we know as CTS that we've that I've lived with as long as I've been here and I'm sort of used to it. I never thought that it had such an interesting past. And also uh, being a, a language maven and sort of a linguist, it's interesting to me that as common a word as Lu Xingxie comes from the Zhongguo Lu Xingxie, the CTS, that word, and also Zhao uh, Daisuo, which never imagined that that's uh, another formation that comes from this from this corporation that he founded. So, can you tell us how Chen Guangfu, you know, how instrumental he was in setting up, I guess, the the entire f- the possibility and the format for the travel industry in China? Yeah, Chen Guangfu is a fascinating uh, person. You know, for people who study banking history, actually know him well. Like in China, they call him the J.P. Morgan of China. He didn't go through civil service exam. He come from kind of this background to go clerk at the customs office in Hankou, so kind of a Western kind of semi-colonial institution where he pick up some English. And later he was sent to the United States by the Qing government to go to the St. Louis Award Fair. And he decided to stay in the States and to go to first a college in Ohio, where he became friend with Kong Xiangxi, who later will become kind of financial czar of, for the nationalist government. And he finished his undergrad at UPenn Warden School, so School of Business. And at that point, he came back to China to run a provincial bank in uh, Jiangsu, which is a state bank. And then he quit to establish his own private uh, Chinese-owned bank, uh, Shanghai Commercial and Savings Bank. This is the time period, early, kind of the first decade of the Republican period. He's 
trying to figure out how do you you know have a Chinese run bank in a society in a country that fundamentally the banking system, the financial world is controlled either by big state banks or by the foreign banks. And he he he's having a hard time to to figure that out. But once the railway was going, in fact, you know, railway development. It's interesting that most of the railway actually was in the Republican period is built during the warlord period rather than during the, the nationalist period. So he's looking at all these railway lines. So he figured out if I cannot dominate in big cities and also provincial, say. Capital, but there's also secondary cities on those railway line. It seems to be a market could be tapped into, and that's where he went. So I, I suspect I'm not doing like you know banking history, but I'm suspect at that time he started to talk about his own experience going to、uh, the example he used is going to Thomas Cook and Son, which is the British company, which since maybe 1870s have already have branches in Hong Kong, Shanghai to serve international travelers coming to China. So he talks about he went to to book some tickets to go to Yunnan or somewhere far, but the clerk who's Uh, who's Caucasian and didn't pay him any attention, and he later recalled that as the instinct and origin he wanted to build his own or have his own travel agency, and that he did. What he did in 1923, he opened a travel department under his bank in Shanghai, basically dealing with ticket booking, and also, of course, he issued a, tra- a travel check check as a way like the American Express type of service. I think that's what tapped into his. Kind of business savvy side, and that just from that, the whole institution grew, especially during the Nanjing decade. I think in 1926, he basically separated the travel department from his bank to form China Travel Service or Zhongguo Luxingshu, which still exists today. But I have to say that the one exists today in China, in mainland China, actually is from Hong Kong. Uh, which is actually taken over by the Communist Party in the early 1950s, and Chen Guofu actually moved to he he was in Hong Kong for a few years, kind of wait and see how 1949 afterwards. But then he moved to Taiwan, mostly because Chiang Kai-shek for, froze his account. Actually, he he has to go to Taiwan and and he settled there. And also in Taiwan now you have Zhongguo Luxingshu, which the has the same name but different. Logo, different calligraphy. Actually, the one original one, the calligraphy was done by Zheng Xiaoxu, and the new one in China is done by Guo Moruo. So that's the my geek side of the institution. It still exists. I have you know very interesting history later on, but the main development is from 1923 in in mainland China and to 1949. That's the story I'm tracking in my book. This is totally an aside, but. Did like Guomoraw have his own like logo making business? Because his calligraphy is also the Bank of China. There's like a bunch of other like、uh, logos that are in like every day you see it all the time, and it's Guomoraw's like handwriting. And I, I there, at his house there is like a wall of like all his the logos that he is responsible for. It's kind of amazing that he like this one guy has his writing everywhere you go in I, China.、Yeah. I think so. He might be the second person if you cannot get Mao to write. <laughs> you might go to him. I, I can just see this now. Like, we need a logo. Can we get Mao? I don't know. It's going to be expensive. Well, get Guomora. I mean, you know, dumpling dinner and fifty bucks. We could probably get his handwriting. One of the things about CTS, I, I thought, was, 
is CTS also, did they also publish their own magazine or were they involved in the publication of a travel magazine as well? Yes, uh, they do have a, a magazine called the uh, uh, so in Chinese in English, or they have their own English title called China Traveler, even though it doesn't grammatically correct that that's the title they chose. It's the longest uh, running travel magazine in the Republican period. I even suspect even today, I don't think it's it's from roughly 1926-ish or 1927. In mainland, CTS shut down in 1954. So they actually run all the way through 1954. And that's the, I think they also run it in Taiwan once they move. Well, it's also not the only kind of publication kind of venture they got into. They actually published their own travel guides, started with the most touristy destinations like Hangzhou, or Xihu, Westlake, and have more Ganshan. And later we'll go into all sorts of direction cities. And, you know, I tracked it in my uh, second uh, chapter, which is talking about publication. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because that was a, certainly a big, uh, one of the aspects of uh, sort of letting China imagine itself, letting the people, you, call, you, you use the term that I think is very important is Quan Guo, to get a sense of the, the the complexity and diversity and scope of the country. These travel, could you talk a little bit about the travel journals? Because there were lots of them. And you have some great photos, by the way, in your, uh, in your book that, sh- that show them that there's not much difference, really. I, some of the hotel uh, shots I was looking at, it, they could be used today in, in you know, the Marriott Hotel. So can you talk about the importance of these journals and in, in sort of evoking the, in the imagination of the Chinese people? This world of travel. Yeah, I think publication and uh, kind of the in- tourism industry itself, they are together. You know, not only in my book, I talk about Lu Xing Zhi China Traveler, which is kind of the flagship uh, magazine by CTS. I'm also talking about there's a whole kind of industry of travel related publication, including like the big three, the at least the big two, the Shangwu. Guan and Zhonghua Shuju, they're very involved in publishing travel guides, publishing, you know, collection of travel logs. You know, one thing is always interesting when I talk about Chuanguo, I'm talking about Chuanguo as an idea because I emphasize that, you know, in reality, you probably cannot travel like as a tourist, go to every place in China at a time. But this imagination of it's possible. And or it might not be possible for, say, a school teacher in Shanghai making very, you know, limited uh, income to go, say, all the way to Inner Mongolia. But they are thinking about, you know, there there were people, you know, either doing scientific expedition, but also sometimes students venture into faraway places and they publish they their travel log and they publish their travel uh, photograph and they're also alongside all these kind of publication you also have almost like today's travel journalism it's basically like right they tell you if you want to do that then here is the way to do it so for the people who consume of this print media or travel related print media they can imagine themselves, okay, one day if I have more money or if I have more vacation time, maybe I can pick up this and plan this trip all the way far away to Inner Mongolia or something. But from that kind of reading, imagining all this kind of vicarious travel, 
I think it's it's made it possible for Chuanguo to be a concept and to be a like common sense. You know, it doesn't really jarring anymore. This idea that it's it's possible for me to go, even if I'm today, I'm not going because it might take three weeks just to to no, it's impossible to take off from work. But that's the print culture, I think, travel related print culture and Chuanguo's relation. It's really make it possible to imagine it. And once you can imagine it, and that kind of a the the the, the huge geography of China, even at the time, is very much fragmented. It's no longer quite a problem to like a, in a, like an obstacle to really imagine the oneness of China at a time which was in the middle of war and all sorts of trouble. Yeah, I think that's a really important difference between like today and 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 the period you're talking about. Because of course, the period you're talking about, people when they're traveling in China are confronted with the realities of traveling in to use the term, a semi-colonial situation, a semi-colonial society. Uh, you mentioned Thomas Cook, and I think of like Thomas Cook and that generation of travel agents, their whole idea was to try to allow people to experience the world and yet have a protected space where they'd be safe from the locals who actually lived there. And it's in some ways with Chinese travelers, there was a slightly different situation where they were entering spaces and they were coming up against, as you said, those kind of boundaries there that I think in your book, you say that Chinese and foreign passengers, they occupied separate physical spaces. And a lot of these spaces were, were based on racial categories. And I, I think about that in terms of what that must have felt like for urbanites to be confronted by that in traveling and how that allowed, when they were experiencing their own country, how that influenced the way they experienced their country. They're traveling around, they're discovering new spaces. And yet they're being everywhere reminded that their country, no matter how complete it was, is not entirely their own. One thing I you know, kind of want to emphasize, kind of from the origin I was writing this book is mainly because when I was in graduate school, I really studied quite a bit about post-colonial theory, post-colonial. Also, travel writing is one of the major things. One thing I realized is very little was said about people Oh, Chinese traveler. China only appeared as a destination and mostly like Thomas Cook. And so that kind of very clean experience. And one thing I was always like trying to push back is trying to say, hey, Chinese travel too. But I do see that the experience would be very different. Of course, the the separation of the of space mainly happened in steamships, which I think Anne Reinhardt uh, at Wenham's College, uh, who wrote this book about steamships, will really emphasize that. Because even if you are rich, you actually cannot buy the class uh, only reserved for foreigners. That's how segregated steamships are. There are certain, certain decks are only uh, available uh, uh, to foreigners. And other decks will be also segregated by class, mainly. But train is an interesting thing. Train actually, uh, oftentimes, of course, it's segregated by which class of tickets you pay. But there's also all sorts of kind of the travelers will talk about it as harassment. Uh, a lot of time, basically, uh, because of railways was also built kind of uh, with foreign loans, you have clerks from different uh, 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 railway managers and also conductors from different uh, foreign backgrounds. So Chinese travelers often experience some sort of, sometimes we can say microaggression, 
like check your luggage twice or throw out your perfectly fine things they want you to pay tax or you know certain kind of that kind of thing so that's the kind of the condition semi-colonial condition on those modern transportation is i think i think chen guangfu also caught that as a common kind of shared both anxiety and frustration by chinese urbanites and that's one of the reasons i think he likes to quote that original story, origin story of he being discriminated at Thomas Cook. I think it's a shared frustration by a lot of urbanites who wants to travel and, of, of course, to promote his travel service. As I, as, as I said, as a national product, right? It's, 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 it's a Chinese service for travel. So in that sense, I think semi-colonialism did actually also promoted this national product and promoted Chinese tourism in a way, even though as it kind of a presented obstacle to it. That's kind of the tension I want to capture uh, kind of in, in, in the book. As you mentioned, there's also other kind of internal borders, I would say, not even in the social space. Sometimes literal a border will emerge, for example, Manchuria, right? The chapter I talk about Manchuria after 30 to 33, when Manzhou Guo was established, they did set up a border along Shanghai, Shanghai Guan. And overnight, you have travel basically changed. You'll have to, you know, travel still, like trains still go through, but you have to change staff. You have like a kind of a go through a custom, you know, that's a certain time, you know, you, you, you have those interesting episodes just give you a sense that even though that it actually triggered Chinese traveler to say, wait a minute, Manchuria is part of China, even as they literally being carved out. So I think travel has this interesting moment to create, you know, kind of a almost like counter narrative. It's precisely because Manchuria being carved out and suddenly Manchuria be- becomes so important a part of China in travelers kind of narrative and you know image of China. When you're reading the travel literature about China in this period, one of the things you we always see is this exoticizing of China, you know, from the perspective of the foreigners. That this was a place, you know, an exotic possibly dangerous realm to be explored and to see the colorful locals. And that's I mean that's a big part of colonial literature and a big part of othering people as part of the colonial project. But at the same time, there is a critique that in present day and in the Republican period too, that travelers from urban China going especially out to the West took some of those same practices with them. And there was this idea of exoticizing and othering people lived out there. And there's an, it's an interesting kind of anecdote that you have in your book about exploration and expeditions. And you're talking about some of these foreign, what they called expeditions to what's today Western China, and how the Chinese academics who went with them resented the term expedition, not because they assumed that expedition or that's what you did in Africa. That's what you did someplace that was, quote, less civilized. And what I found interesting about this was not only the fact that the Chinese academics pushed back that, you know, China is not a place to be studied, like anthropologically. But at the same time, the way they spoke about the people they were visiting was very similar to the way the foreign academics were talking about the people they were visiting. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit about that, how this kind of, they use the term kind of internal orientalism, 
kind of played out in this expedition literature and these expedition uh, travels? Also, the favorite chapter, of, you know, I'm, while I'm writing, I, I enjoyed a lot of writing that chapter. It's actually the chapter I talk about travel to the northwest, Xibei, which is a vague term at a time. Xibei can be as large as, you know, kind of the whole Xinjiang, uh, Neimeng, and, you know, Lanzhou, all those, Gansu, all those areas. But at the same time, you, you know, where it it is is a kind of a, also triggered by the Manchurian incident. You know, kind of you have this uh, started as an intellectual movement, mostly people, uh, scholars and academic students in Beijing, starting to pay attention to the Northwest. Basically, they say, "Oh, we lost Dongbei. We cannot lose Xibei anymore." So a lot of attention uh, was given to that corner of China. But one thing is, I it is a precursor. Actually, later on, as I said, West Railway moved to West. You have it's a it's a precursor to the later on tourism. But one of the interesting thing is, uh, as you mentioned, you have this huge expedition, or let's go. They want to call it scientific mission. Kushikautatuan uh, was organized by Sven. Uh, Heading, who's a Swedish explorer who's been to China or been to the kind of the borderlands of China many times. But this time, it really basically caught attention of Chinese intellectual and they protested. And then they decided to say, uh, Sun Heading decided to let some Chinese scholar to join them and will become the Sino-Swedish scientific mission, which lasted fairly long. So I'm tracking this kind of early joint ex- kind of experience. That's actually one, one thing the scholars actually, Chinese scholars actually say, you know what, without these foreign travelers or explorers, their financial support, they actually got money from Lufthansa. Uh, trying to open an airfield, actually, in Wulumuchi. Anyway, th- so they, they basically figure out without their money, without their infrastructure, without their, uh, without their kind of uh, support or the organization, they cannot really go. But once they go, you, they actually share quite a bit of rationale, logic, and the way of looking. Even though I talk about they look at it in different directions. One of the things I think for Chinese scholars uh, Chinese scientists, they really want to push Chinese. Uh, at the time, the scholars are mainly engaged in actually national studies, guoxue. They really, really want to make Chinese studies or national studies a scientific discipline. So for them, they want to discover the origin of Chinese civilization from the Northwest. Before Herding and other Western scholars, they actually interested in this kind of the China's Northwest or at the time they, you know, kind of an inner Asia connection, right? The Silk Road and this kind of Western kind of influence into that region. So they are totally shared different directions, but the idea is actually the same, trying to scientifically trace the civilizational, say, origin of a, a region. Or, but, but that's what I'm trying to track. Travel is sometimes, even though they are under semi-colonial condition, would be almost like antagonism, right? You have one is like Western explorers to a certain degree you can say invasion or invaders. The other side is a anti-colonial, they want to push back. But to a certain degree, when they travel was supposed to be the periphery in their mind, they actually share a lot of mindset which later on will kind of seep into the urbanized tourism when they travel to so-called periphery. 
they will complain about the travel condition. They will talk about, you know, how the local people are, you know, they, they, they have all these as kind of orientalist way to look at so-called other from them as they travel. And including, as you know, as uh, ethnic tourism, you know, when one episode is going to Taiwan, the set item on your itinerary is visit indigenous uh, people in Riyuetan in 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 Taiwan, which is which is also give give opportunity for urbanites to experience this exotic or to a certain degree primitive native culture in their own kind of own country, which is also I think very much it uh, kind of resonate with today's tourism. It's kind of interesting too because some of the some of the complaints that you would hear you would you would hear people in their this is from foreigners in the Republican period talking about was they would they carved out these foreign enclaves for tourist purposes like Mogan or Beidaihe, right? And these are now popular tourist sites in China generally. But they were trying to recreate a particular tourist experience from another part of the world and replicate that in China. As a way to kind, of, I, I I guess there's no other way to put it, like to pretend they weren't in China for a summer or something like that. But then the the pro, the challenge the problem for that became when relatively well off urbanites from Beijing and Shanghai were like, "Hey, beach, let's do that." And all of a sudden, these spaces were were kind of became mixed spaces. I mean, segregated to be sure, but not purely foreign enclaves. And I think about that when I think of the the language that's used to describe tourist sites in China today, like go to Yangshua before it gets invaded by the Chinese hordes. It's like, yeah, but I kind of feel like like Yangshua is in China. And and I, I just see that. This is, this is another example of how that kind of, it, it may be expressed a little bit differently, but I don't think the sentiment is that different. No, I agree. It's, a, it's an interesting kind of, if you think about tourism space, also kind of a constitute the early kind of struggle, say, reclaim Chinese right, because certain space like Mo Gangshan and also Guling basically is Lushan, uh, which uh, I think the early developer who's a missionary famously turned Guling into cooling, like uh, so it's a summer resort. So early on, Mo Gangshan and Lushan, the local government did sign some rights away to missionaries or foreigners starting to submarine in those resort areas and start building. So it is supposed to be a foreign enclave. It is supposed, as you said, to pretend not in China. So they will have, you know, quotes like, oh, after the, you know, poisonous airs in Shanghai, don't you want to just go to, you know, mountains to enjoy the clean air, play tennis, you know, or all these, you know, summering activities for foreigners. But as you said, yes, rich Chinese people did figure out that's also the nice place to go. But they also realized they have no place to stay because most of the hotels don't cater to them. And um, maybe there's one or two hotel well. But that's when CTS, the China Travel Service, actually started to popping up in those areas, setting up their summer office there. They won in Morgan, they bought a German hotel, German owned hotel after World War One. So because all the Westerners no longer want to go to a German owned hotel. And then they started, or maybe it's the railway, the Huning Tianlu, maybe bought the hotel, but starting to cater to Chinese tourists and China travel service. For example, in Beidaihe, if it, even if they are hard to like open a hotel there, but they, they would, they would just ask the railway company to give them a special tourism train so the people can actually stay on the train 
uh, during the night and go to the beach, and that will be a weekend kind of package tour they do from Beijing. So all these things is happening, as you said. Once they set up an enclave, you'll have people want to go, Chinese people, and Chinese people are actually starting to write to say, Hey, how come these Westerners can carve out these areas and they are, you know, they are not say in certain treaties. We need to take it back. So there's a lot of negotiation. Also, tourism became the early instinct to negotiate with these extraterritorial rights in those、uh, areas. And oftentimes, you know, they Chinese won and Chinese can got certain rights back, including collecting certain taxes. Which is、uh, very interesting. One other thing I, I thought was great. David mentioned the phot- photographs in your book, and I thought about like photography. As I say, photography for the masses was kind of a relatively new tech. Was a relatively new technology in the early twentieth century. The idea is you could take a camera with you on vacation, right? But of course, that's nothing like. I mean, how do you compare that to the twenty first century? I can't remember the exact exact statistic, but somebody said something like, "There are more pictures or photographs taken every like second or every minute in the twenty first century than in all the photographs that have been taken like in the twentieth century." That kind of thing, and I I think about how those photographs they capture like a particular gaze for. Travelers at the time, and I think what I'd like,、uh, what I wanted to ask you about, moving to kind of your latest project. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a new project on photographer Zhuang Xueben, who, who's also from Shanghai. One of the things I first noticed him because of the、uh, tour in China. In the chapter on the print culture, I was tracking all these Liangyou travel columns. So two of them I, 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 I write about in the chapter. Mainly about urbanites, where urbanites can go, or so to a certain degree, a little bit more far out there, but still you can visit. But one of the travel columns in Liangyou called Xiyouji, which is classic Chinese novel, but it's actually、uh, take the kind of the title or、uh, the the name to Journey to the West because Zhuang Xueben actually went to. Uh, whereas today,、uh, today is Western Sichuan. At the time, is、uh, they they have a province、uh, established there called Xikang, which is the Kham region of the cultural Tibet, which is Kham actually in Tibetan is means border,、uh, borderland. So actually, it's the eastern borderland of Tibet, or we can say you know kind of the border between、uh, Han Chinese regions and Tibetan. Regions, even though it's actually a very ethnically、uh, diverse region, because it's not just Tibetan. You have、uh, Qiang. If you go a little bit north, you have all those Tujiazu, maybe not Solo. Kind of all sorts of, you know,、uh, Yi, the、uh, Yizu. Of course, at the time, you 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 have all sorts of conflict between even you know you know kind of a 大小梁山 those region. Even today, we're considered the the poorest region in China, the most remote regions in China. So. He went there in '34, the first trip, trying to join a mission to go to Lhasa when you know the 13th Dalai Lama passed away, and the Nanjing government was sending an official mission to offer their condolence. But he was stopped. Basically, no one wants him to join, and he stayed in Chengdu for a little bit, and then started to explore. So-called Baidi blank land on the map. The, like on the map, there are certain regions say never be explored. Of course, it's a it's a pretty interesting colonial mentality by 
calling certain place by the you know blank land. So and then the second year he went back with the Panchen Lama at the time was exiled in Nanjing or in in the you know Han Chinese region because of certain conflicts with Dalai Lama and then he wants to go back to his. Uh, to Tibet proper, and the Nanjing government give him a kind of entourage and to send him overland to to Tibet. And Zhang Shibun was the official photographer of the mission, and the mission was curtailed uh, around 1937. They never entered Tibet proper. Uh, Panchen Lama passed away. Sino-Japanese war broke out, and Zhang Shibun said he wanted to come back, but was blocked from coming back to Shanghai. So he stayed in Shikang region and explored the region for uh, maybe three years-ish, 20, uh, 37 to 40, because he actually went to India in 1941 or 42 and stayed until the end of the war in Calcutta. So that's the time period he was taking all those photos of, and he was kind of traveling around the region, going to northern Yunnan, going to Qinghai, going to kind of all sorts of regions uh, in Shikan to take photographs and go into Liangshan to take photograph of the Yi people, take photograph of the Qiang people. So that's the enormous roof we see today. And there's a, a com- his complete work was published in maybe 2009, 10, I forgot. But that's where we see all those images come from. Those images were so unique. Like I, when I first saw it, even just in the grainy reproduction in Liaoyou magazine from the 30s, it was striking. So what I'm trying to figure out is what is the global and local network allowed him to do that kind of work? By global, I'm trying to figure out, say, okay, what kind of camera he's using, what kind of film he's using? Just imagine if you travel all the way in Liangshan, Right? How 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 are you going to carry all these materials? Or are you saving all these and wait until you're back to Chengdu or maybe go to Kangding? If is there a studio allow you to kind of print it out, or are you just sending the negative or to certain way to Shanghai and they will print out? And what are these kind of material network allow him to do so? The second question is the local context. How did he manage to travel? Like interact with people? How did he manage to say? not only photograph, say, the leaders of the local community, but also maybe the poor peasants and nomads of the region. And how did he manage to do so? I have to say it's a very challenging task because most of the time we don't have a lot of paper trails being left for us to be able to track it. So that's uh, that's something I, I'm still trying to figure out. Well, I can't wait to read. I can't wait to wait to read about it. I mean, it sounds like a fascinating adventure, and I, I love the I love the whole point about the logistics of it. In this day and age of like you know iPhone click and like digital image, in those in those days of like you know if you're carrying around film and you fall in the river, that could be like three months worth of work, like gone. And 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 you're traveling in places where falling in a river is like a very real possibility on like a, a daily basis. So. I can't wait to read more about this research. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us today all the way from Boston. And uh, the book, Touring China, A History of Travel Culture, 1912 to 1949. It's out there, hardcover. It's on Amazon. There's a Kindle version for those of us in China. and We can't buy real books. Thank you very much, Yajun, for, for coming thank out today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such, you know, 
a very lovely conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Well, on behalf of David and I, thank you for our listeners and tune in again for another episode of Barbarians at the Gate.